When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced. From the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support, the new Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production, healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, Get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. Today I'm talking I am not a serial killer and I've got Billy O'Brien with me. Hello Billy. Hiya. Um, the, fil- the film is, um, has already had a, brief, had a brief cinema release in Britain and True. it's just got its uh, VOD, DVD and etc. release. Um, so it's out there now for people to get, I do believe. Yep. Do you want to give, before we go into any details about it, do you want to give us a brief synopsis as to what the film is? Oh, crikey. Okay. Um, it's, it's a book adaptation uh, of the same name, I'm Not a Serial Killer, by the writer Dan Wells, uh, all set in a small Midwest town, mostly in winter, so feels a bit like Fargo with snow everywhere. And it's about a teenage boy who is, I suppose, a little bit like a teenage Sherlock Holmes in that he starts investigating a series of murders in his town. But John, the kid, John Wayne Cleaver, has his own uh, things to deal with because he's worried himself. Uh, he's got some sociopathic tendencies. He has a therapist, and he's worried that he might one day become a killer, a serial killer himself. So he's hunting this real murderer, but worried that he'll unleash his own inner murderer if he's not careful how's that that sounds perfect to me and what i'm going to do my best to what i'm going to do my best to do and it, it, it may it may happen towards the end i want to avoid spoiler because one of the beauties yeah, of I, that this film is 
is where it go, where it starts and where it ends, and maybe not if you've never heard what happens. There's going to be some surprises for you, so I want to avoid spoilers. So yeah, absolutely, and you probably heard me talking very slowly there, as if I was on thin ice. Because <laughs> I'm so careful not to say that. I, in the in interviews in the past, I'm I'm terrible once I get talking to just. And then this bit happens, and you go, "Oh crap! What have I said?" You know. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think the the important piece of information is obviously the title. I am not a serial killer, and a young boy who has feelings that he might be, and a therapist that worries he is, and where yeah. we go from there is somewhere super duper fantastic. Um, now, I was, as I was saying, just in the locker room, as it were, of of a podcast before it starts, uh, I, I really, really enjoyed this movie. It was. Uh, it was kind Thank of. You. It kind of. It it does that great thing of um, of 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 indie genre films is that you could you could almost you could take out you could take out the horror elements of it, and it just still run as a great indie drama. You know, there's so much rich characters in there that you know. But, well, I think there's two things about that. One is it's the book is just uh, it, it was what drew to me was that the richness of the yeah. the kind of blue collar working. You know, small town Rust Belt, and and the, the characters are hilarious. Like they're really funny in a genuinely natural way. Like my own family, you know, like we all grew up with. That mm. there isn't any. Um, I I don't know about you, but I find like some Hollywood scripts that would tackle the same subject, you would immediately know that the teenagers in it are going to be types. They're going to be stereotypical. They've almost written them from a box, kind of of how they should talk and act. Whereas this felt very real. And, and the other thing I, I always feel is that if you look back at Hitchcock, if you take the birds, for example, the the romance relationship where she follows, I can't remember their names, but she follows the guy back to his town mm-hmm. because she really wants him. Uh, it, that story itself, if the birds had never happened, I would have been happy to follow that because it's done so well. you know. And I think that's the key really is that if you believe in your characters and you have empathy, then you'll go anywhere with them. You know, and, and a lot of unfortunately films today, I think, get straight to plot and then stick on the plot, 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 and we all get a little bit bored because the characters aren't interesting enough. No, no, no. totally, totally. It's, it's funny if I just it's 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 a different different film, but 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 same, but same difference as it were. I watched um, the ones below last night. It, it oh, I've up. never seen that. And equally, that has a, a very tense. It's a more of a, th- a thriller, straight up thriller. But yeah. but it, it, it's it's the peculiarity of the characters that draws you into a yeah. plot, not the plot that draws you into the characters. If that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Like I was even thinking the other day, you know that uh, I forgot the name of the director, but the Korean monster film, The Host. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean that family dynamic, you know, running the little stall and the kind of dysfunctionality about them are just fascinating, you know. And and so it's it's and and so it's a lot more interesting than again a, a group of good-looking kind of model types, you know. Uh, great fun killing great good-looking model types off one by one. There's no doubt about that. But you know, it's just yeah. When when it's real, you, you feel it much more. I think. Yeah. And, and that 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 immediately said is going to be unpredictable because we don't know these character types. They're different. They're interesting. They're like the people we we know in real life. And so we you know real life is isn't predictable. So that helps. So let, let's 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 start at that point then. How did you how did you come across the book? How did the book come across you? It was a, a kind of a, a, a funny thing. A producer I'd worked with uh, on a previous film uh, had a, a number of projects with a number of directors, and he'd mentioned that uh, uh, I got uh, her name um, that, that he'd got a reader, somebody whose job is basically to, to research films and find projects for people, and she does a lot of work around London, 
like for a working title and, and places like that. And he'd asked her to come in and, and just see if she, he, if she could find some projects for some directors he's working with. So I said, oh, I'd love to meet her. You know, it'd be interesting. Um, Ilias, sorry, that's her name. Um, and I, I met her uh, in Foyle's bookshop. You probably know Charing Cross Road, the I famous. I do, yeah, 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 yeah. It was the old one, in fact, before they moved. Um, and we just had a nice cup of coffee, chat for about 40 minutes, and she just sort of, you know, asked what I was into, the kind of crazy films I liked and so on. Um, and literally, I, I headed home. I was living in London. Was I living in London? No, I was head, heading up to my, my, my wife's uh, uh, mum's house, I think. And uh, she went downstairs in foils, put her hand out in the, I think it was the horror section or the science fiction section, and found I'm Not Circular by Dan Wells. Took one look at it and texted me saying, you should have a look at this book. And I read it, I, I got it, I read it over the next few days and absolutely loved it. And it was as simple as that. It's very weird. It would never happen like that because it was paperback. And for whatever reason, the rights hadn't been taken. And normally I don't, if I pick up a paperback, I try not to fall in love with the book because pretty much you, you go on Google and you find straight away that X Studio or whatever is developing it. But maybe this was just too quirky for them. I don't know. Um, Dan had had interest before, but nothing, I think, major. Okay. Uh, and he was quite protective of it as well. I think he didn't want to just flog it off to, to somebody who do a bad job. So I then, th that was the next stage. I then wrote a letter to Dan. Um, and I, I'd, I'd never really done this before. And I didn't know how you approach. And, and also, Dan lives in Utah in America. You know, I, I didn't have to have any points of, um, uh, you know, understanding or whatever between us, how, how he'd worked that side out. So I just was very honest told him how much I loved it and why. And, and I hit upon the whole teenage thing of John, hmm. which, you know, was just what struck me so much about the book. The kind of, uh, I, I think I called it like the slightly juddering, like a constant earthquake feeling when you're a teenager, when nothing seems right and you're totally unaware of, of parameters and boundaries and so on. And also that the humor that, that was quite rare to find this mix of horror and thriller and humor all in one really tight package, hmm. that the humor ha had a kind of almost... Um, I was seeing a Finnish humour or Russian literature, um, you know, very dark black humour, but very funny. Mm. Uh, and, and yeah, whatever I said sort of struck a nerve. I think the Russian literary thing, I think he quite liked being compared to Russian literature. So that, that was a good one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he, he responded and said he was open <clears throat> to the rights. So we were off and running. So it was, it's, it was interesting, it's interesting you mentioned you wrote, you wrote a letter because that seems to be, uh, I, I mean, it seems to be... Uh, I, Anecdotal evidence of people I've had in the podcast, and it's four or five talking about how they got the book, a book had the book to to like they licensed the book to adapt it. Um, yeah, is that it wasn't to do with the fact that they had access to money to then just pay whatever fee someone was. The author naturally was precious about their thing. Yeah, and it was the it was the why I loved your book that convinced them to go down, to go with a certain writer director, not not the amount of money they might receive from it, which I think is interesting for people listening, that, that you know, I, it, it isn't just about being able to get the licence, it's actually getting... The, the other thing, I, I think, because this was 2009, yeah. and we had the big crash in 2008, and I know from side <coughs> mate to LA at the time that the studios were sort of jettisoning all their, their development departments, and uh, the, the industry, as you know, was in a, a bit of a crisis, I yeah. think perhaps it slipped to the cracks as well, you know, and that they're, they're, they were more, they were sort of, you know, everybody retracts to what's safe, and this is mm. not a safe book. It's an unusual book with a 15-year-old and an old man rather mm. than a, you know, a Michael Fassbender or a Tom Hardy role in it. So 
I might have just been lucky in the timing as well, you know, because I'm sure Dan is, is, has a family. I'm sure if, if Hollywood came calling with a big cash offer, mm. you know, whatever his qualms about it, he would have had to take it because it, it, the, 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 what they offer, no, nobody in the independent world can offer, you know. Of course, so, of course. But, but I think at the time they, they weren't offering in general. I think it was... Uh, well, no, I think that's the point. I, mean, I, don't, I don't mean that they wouldn't take the money. I mean that an a, a, a earnest approach can actually gain you a lot. Anyway, can't it? Is what, is what well, I, I suppose I had nothing to lose because we had no, well, we had very little money, you know, to pay him. And I think uh, I had to kind of just say what I felt about it. it, it one lucky thing happened is that, uh, remarkably, Dan had seen my first film, Isolation, and loved mm. it. <laughs> so wow, I mean, that okay. was definitely unusual, you know. Um, so I was pleased about that. Um, his favourite film of all time is Jaws, so he likes a good horror stroke thriller, you know, which. Uh, okay. Is, Good. Yeah. So, so when you came, to, so when you came to adapt it, now again, I'm not. We're not going to spoil it, but given given there's such a significant turn of events in in the not. I've not read the novel. In the novel, is the turn of events saved to the end, or is the, the turn of events something that happens sort of because novels obviously work differently than film. Um, the same point in the book happens in the film, which is the lake scene. Okay. The, the difference being, in the book, you're always in John's head. It's first person. Oh, okay. thoughts the whole way. So he describes what he sees, and he he spends a lot of the book, like an investigative journalist, I guess, quizzing himself about what could be going on. So that, of course, gives you much more opportunity for exposition. So like, um, like, like, a, like, a, like a, almost like a Raymond Chandler type book? Or a, or a... No, just that, like, if you imagine how weird everything gets, yeah, yeah, John yeah. is... John is an anchor, and he's trying to figure it out. And, and because you're head, you're with him as he's trying to figure it out. Um, in in the film, there's several stages. We we like from script to film to editing. That they're all part of the writing in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and and so we, you know, this was a major issue for us. Again, being very careful with the whole spoiler thing. So how how we did without doing it the way Dan did. How do we get it across, and how much we got across? And we erred on the side of subtlety. So the lake scene explodes everything, but only if you watch carefully in that sense. You know something's weird, but we don't really fill in all the dots because we've got the rest of the film to do that, if that makes sense. But it gives, uh, you, it gives you some assurances about who and what John is, doesn't it, in terms of... Yeah, uh, I mean, look, the, the main thing was, the, the, the to go back to the start of the adaptation, I worked with a writer called Christopher Hyde, uh, mm -hmm. He's, he's a youngish writer I'd met because we shared an agent and we'd been discussing. I, we'd, we were talking about working on different projects. And then I, I just thought, this is a book adaptation. What's great, if it's my own idea, sometimes it's hard for, for me at an early stage to communicate to another writer what it is I'm thinking. But with a book, we have a Bible we can both work from. Okay. And so the first draft we did between us had a voiceover to match the book. And... It was a disappointment, the, the, the draft, because we both realized it got very safe. The voiceover became like a comfort blanket, and you would never doubt that John and his problems would, would lead anywhere dangerous, if you like. Got you. Um, then, <clears throat> so that, that was one of the, the big changes that happened during the, the process of scripting it, I guess. Uh, the, you know, plus, I think a second one, again, being careful... The, the book ending is different. You, you end up in the same place, but how we get there is different. Okay. And that was because of... You haven't read the book, have you, Stuart? No, 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 not, no. 
Okay, right. So <laughs> I'm really on thin ice here. Um, there was a point we realized that, you know, it works in the book, but in film terms, there was a miss, something missing, we felt, for, for a film. And so we had to change things. And, and I think it works in the film, uh, whereas the book works in its own terms. And that's, of course, the main difference is that a book and a film are totally different experiences and, and that they have to be to each other. So in that yeah. sense, I mean, it, it, I mean, it, it makes sense that your your first sort of stab, as it were, at the adaptation would be a voice would be voiceover led, given you describe the book as happening largely as John works out the young lad what the hell's going on. Yeah, exactly. That would seem like a natural step, and then so so what was it? So the the, the, the subsequent drafts were where you started to find your own story within the I am not a serial yeah, killer so, story. The, so then a funny thing happened. Um, we uh, basically, just to, to backtrack slightly, so the people involved with this at this stage was, was Chris Hyde, but before Chris came on board, weirdly, my cinematographer, Robbie Ryan, came on board because Robbie loved the book. Um, and basically, I'd started on this this uh, process with, with uh, a producer, and they happened, they didn't like the draft that Chris and I handed in, so we parted company. Okay. Not naming any names here. And Robbie, in fairness to him, he stepped in and took over paying the option, uh, which was something at the time I couldn't do because we were already quite deep in with this one. Um, and so Robbie came in as a sort of de facto producer with no interest in being a producer because he, he loves his job. He's an amazing cinematographer. You know, he shot I, I Daniel Blake, American Honey, Philomena. You know, he's, he's a full-time cinematographer, but he loved the book. We, we'd been in film school together. We, you know, he always works on my projects if he, if he can. Um, and so... Robbie got his cousin Nick involved, who's a director producer in Dublin, who directed The Summit, uh, the uh, documentary about K2 at, at Sundance Cup. Well, actually, it hadn't, hadn't come out at that stage. And we all said, look, we're all filmmakers, as opposed to saying top-end, you know, Weinstein-style producers. Yeah. So, you know, why don't we get over there and make a shoot a test in the Midwest um, and use that to help financing and also learn more about the project? So Robbie, Nick, and myself went over. Nick had done a short film with Max Records uh, when he was 11 or 12, and Max was now 13, and had suggested him for the film. Um, it was a long-winded one, but we went over, we met Max. Max was amazing, a bit too young, but we thought, you know, it's going to take a year or two to raise finance. But we learned a lot about the, the project being in the Midwest and meeting people. And when we came back, I then did the next draft on my own. It wasn't like we'd falling out with Chris and that, but I'd been given some money from the Irish Film Board, and... I just sort of said, right, well, I'm going to do this um, strip off the voiceover and see where we get to. Uh, and that really was the biggest change from, like, most of the work we'd done had been done, Chris and me had solved it, but the, taking the voiceover off, which was quite scary at the time, mm. because I thought, really, this is the biggest change from the book we're doing, and will it work? And, and I remember, the, the, in the right, as a writer terms, Two emotions. One, one was being very scared that it was getting plain and very plain the writing without the voiceover. And mm. then secondly, getting a real thrill that suddenly it was dangerous because you didn't know what John was going to do each scene. And the big question that sort of came up immediately was, is he just a teenager who is dabbling in a kind of fascination with serial killers, but actually is just a normal kid going through teenage years? Or is this somebody who has serious mental issues? that could become a killer. And those questions are there right to the end when you strip off the voiceover because you've no guide anymore. Nobody's telling you. Without a doubt, without a doubt, Billy. That was, that was certainly my experience watching it. Yeah, was, so I, that, was, that was great. And then, to be honest, that was it. I mean, we did, uh, you know, I did, I'd, I'd send everything to, to Chris anyway, but I did two more 
sort of as you normally do, you know, uh, tidy up drafts really. But that was that, and and all the work we'd done in the first draft was it. So it was a very, and also because once Robbie came on board and we didn't have a a large company over us, if you like, we had nobody to answer to but ourselves. And this, look, as you know, is remarkable in film terms. In my 20-year career, I've never had that luxury. Um, so we never had notes. We never had the committee saying, can you change this? Can you do that? It was all really ourselves. The Irish Film Board had been involved from day one, and they were really supportive. Mm. You, you know, their, their notes were, were intelligent, but they weren't the sort of terrible Hollywood notes we all hear about, you know, and I've had in the past. Um, so... There wasn't umpteen drafts. I think we probably shot the fourth draft, which, as I say, really... So really it was two. It was the first one and then the second draft and then just tweaks and, and some edits and that. It sounds like, from what you're saying there, that the sequence of events, though, that seeing the place, as it were, yeah, helped a great deal in terms of that job of removing the, vo- the voiceover. Yeah, and shooting... What we did with the tests, and it's great, it's on the, the Blu-ray, I okay. it might be on the DVD as well, but I'm not sure, was, you know, we, we had a 35mm camera, we had stock. Um, I didn't script it like a short film. We came up with scenarios from the book and the script that fitted the locations we found, and so did glimpses. So the whole thing became like a trailer or maybe a music video, more sort of stream of consciousness. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we found this wonderful... Um, amateur actor who is he was in his 70s and he was an organ repairman in all the Lutheran churches he was in Michigan funny enough we shot this we ended up doing the film in Minnesota but we were in Michigan for the um the test and he looked like a mixture of Clint Eastwood and Scott Glenn uh and he he, he got into acting because he, he was a gym bunny even in his 70s and somebody in his gym said you should model so he was doing clothes modeling and from that got into acting um and so he looked amazing he, he's the one that Christopher Lloyd ended up in the feature um, and then we found this, this wonderful girl who was like a teenage sissy space second. She became Brooke, the, the girl in the film. And so we just did little scenes with them with no dialogue. I think we did one dialogue one, which again is on the Blu-ray, of, of uh, the, the, the phone call, the, the phone box phone call. And we were able to do a comparison between John, uh, sorry, Max at 13 and Max at 17 when we eventually made the, the finished film. So all of that, yeah, it was great. It was great um, being there and getting an, an inkling into it. And I think in a way looking at now, not at the time, that the, the stripping off of the voiceover and losing a safety blanket, I realised that we had, in film terms, we had Max and we had that great location and, and the whole cinematic feel and that maybe we didn't need words, that the pictures could tell it, you know? No, indeed, indeed. Um, you shot this on 16 mil, yeah? Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, when, when, I, when I watched, I mean, it's like, the, of, of the 200 and odd podcasts I've done, you're only the second person that I've spoken to that's shot in 16 mil, done a feature. I think that says, you know, says everything about our age of, of the digital yeah. film. Um, but I'm, 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 I suppose I'm just ancient in that I've always shot film other than one film I did in... in uh, 2013, which is Alexa, but I, I, I just always love film. I'm not a technical expert, and I would never mm. confess that at all. But when I, when I got, I got the, uh, the, the, the DVD to, to preview it, and I, you know, I'm just watching this on a, on a normal HDTV at home, yeah. and, and I just saw the colours and the feel of it, and I'm like, and I, I need that to stop and, and, and go back and look and see, and then I see on the IMDb, you know, 16 mil. And I'm like, yeah, this is there's something that digital can't do that film looks like. It, it has a naturalness to it, and 
I hadn't worked at 16 for a long while. That, that was actually a budget thing. In the, well, there's two reasons. We, we shot oh. the test at 35 mil yeah. because that seemed to be... The, the, well, for this project as well, it, whether I like film or not, it just seemed the whole book is filled with a Midwest, Rust Belt, Americana, all, all of those labels. And that, to me, screams all the films we grew up with. And, and it seemed to be natural for film mm. in kind of horse, horse sense. Yeah. Um, and so 35 was our default position. And we shot the tests on anamorphic lenses, you know, with that, that horizontal flare that J.J. Abrams has made ubiquitous now, you know, that, that they digitally put on everywhere. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, but it was great fun because Max has such, you know, Spike Jones found Max. He's got the kind of classic American kind of feel to him in that setting on his BMX, shot on anamorphic. It just looked gorgeous. But then as time went on, we realized we weren't going to be able to afford that because film prices have gone up as digital has gone down and all the rest. Um, and Robbie's a huge 16 mil fan. He shoots quite a few films on 16, and I hadn't used it. I'll be honest, since probably film school. Mm. Um, but the, 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 the when we did do it, what it has is it, it puts it more into the the David Lynch gritty uh, paint peeling area rather than the glossy J.J. Abrams feeling, say, oh, or, um, or the Amblin one. And it is very beautiful. And also Robbie, just his instinct is is remarkable. And what it does. That even 35 doesn't do that well. It's brilliant on faces. It's it sort of makes like an inner glow from faces. So you have all the the natural colours you're talking about, which, as a director, it, it's always a real head scratcher for me with digital. In that that as you know, you're meant to shoot it kind of milky, and then in every so you can do anything in in the uh, you know when you're um, uh, grading it. Uh, but I always find that really complicated because then everybody in the room, all the producers, everybody, they all have an opinion too. Whereas with film, it's not as simple as you get what you get out of the box, but certainly the look is there automatically. What you look to the ground glass of the lens is there when you're grading. You know, you're usually just matching the, the, the lighting a little bit, you know, from the different weather conditions. Mm. So the grading is relatively straightforward. And that, again, then brings, I think, the power back to the cinematographer and the director on the, on the floor as opposed to it being by committee, and, and I think that makes for stronger images. My, my wife's an artist, and we, we watched it together, and one of the things that you know, and I don't know, it's just me reading too much into it, but just mm. picking up the point there is that with film, because of the way it has to be lit to see what you want to see, as opposed to the way the digital can see everything, even in low <laughs> light, is that you are watching, it's in a way, you're watching the film the director wants you to watch, because... The way it's lit is what you're meant to see. Obviously, you can see other things, but, yeah. but they're not as important because of the way that the, the film focuses on what you're meant to focus on, if that makes sense. It does. It's very true. There's also a lot of... Uh, people seem to suddenly, like after 100 years of using this stuff, suddenly, you know, I'm being told by producers all the time that it's a very difficult format to work with, which is all total bullshit, to be honest. And, I mean, the... the the, the 500 ASA stocks, the, the latest ones, are, you know, the, the, Robbie doesn't use lights much. A lot of the street scene lights we just used, a lot of the nighttime street scenes, we just used available light, mm. you know, um, lamps in, in the bedrooms, even outside. You know, he'd, he'd enhance it if he needed to, but, but we had a tiny light package because it, 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 the, the, the emotion <clears throat> can take it all in, you know. Yes, I mean, the, the, I remember looking um, at scenes like the truck, scene without again without giving too much away at nighttime where john's walking along and discover something at, at the truck yeah uh and you know the background is reduced to twinkly lights because we didn't like the background it was is basically that that huge heating plant in the background and the street lights you know but but it means you are you know it's like for hiding in the dark you, you see enough and what you see is quite beautiful and and i know that i one thing i was really, i'm really pleased about is the kind of car chase bit we have where john's running mm. in it you know yeah um a couple of months after 
sometime during post anyway, after we'd cut that scene. And, and to me, that scene's a real, it just feels like it with, with Adrian's music and, and the drive of it, it just feels a real 70s scene. And uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot came on TV, you know, the um, Clint Eastwood and... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And there's a big car chase at the end that at nighttime through a small Montana town. And it, it's got that brown look again that, that the film gives you, you know, and it, it is, you know, we didn't intend it, but it is retro because it's just the way that it's picking up available light as opposed to, as you said, the digital has a kind of more clinical uh, see-everything feel. So that was quite fun watching. But, well, that could, you know, we could cut those two sequences together and they'd be the same film. So it was fun. Yeah, no, I just love it. And, and the naturalist, and it's easier, you know, a small, sturdy little camera in, a, in the tight spaces we're in, and, you know, in minus 20 degrees. There's no electronics to break down. It's just a sturdy little thing. And, and, and you know, once you've got it, you've got it. It's, it's, it's great, you know. I mean, and the interesting thing with, with, with the location that the book's set in and where you've shot the movie, <coughs> post, post uh, and I know this wasn't, the, the film wasn't meant to reflect anything of, mm. of the current political climate, but it's hard not to watch a movie with, with the whole Rust Belt um, commentary we've had in the, in the presidential campaign. Cause you, oh, cause crikey. You, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, look, we, we scouted, we ended up shooting in Minnesota, but we scouted Ohio and, and drifted into uh, Pennsylvania and West Virginia on our, like, we, we had several trips, me, Robbie and Nick, in a van in the Midwest over the years, because, like, it was about six years from uh, starting this process right through to, 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 to the filming. Um, I scouted Winnipeg up in Canada, but that, that whole area, Ohio in particular, and, and Pennsylvania, that we, you know, we went to the famous Youngstown, where every reporter during the election seemed to end up at one point or another, because 60% of that population in the last 20 years has just had to leave because there's no work anymore, you know. Mm. Um, and, and when we're in Michigan, we'd been to Flint, you know, with all the water crisis that was going on recently. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and even Detroit is post-apocalyptic. I've never seen uh, skyscrapers that are shuttered and empty. You know, uh, Detroit has nothing in the center except you know, homeless people wandering around with shopping trolleys. It's, it's you know, it's pure John Carpenter. You couldn't make it up. Um, and it came back into my head during the election, looking at all that and how it is totally overlooked. But also there was a similarity because I did a film in Yorkshire, in West Yorkshire, uh, a few years ago called Scintilla. And we were near Huddersfield and Drewsbury and that. And there was so much boarded up shops there and the, the hulks of the 19th century industrial revolution that there was a similarity to both regions. And of course, with Brexit and with Trump, they're the two areas that the, the media are now focusing on asking mm. why they voted the way they did and it's pretty apparent when you're there is that they've been overlooked you know i think in the uk successive labor and in tory governments or the other way around tory and labor governments have not done enough in those areas and and the same you know they're the flyover states in america where politicians don't go unless they have to so yeah huge problems there you know no and uh, I, think, I think and i think what it highlights is that uh, we get we get used to seeing so much of cinema set in um, in urban environments and, and 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 that and that 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 bias in of itself is is helps with the fact that places are being ignored because what you get what you get with the urban is this idea of um, of aspiration and yeah. ang and angst that you're not achieving enough whereas what and what your film delivers on and what you, what you show what you show as a, a world is this is a place without angst the people aren't angst ridden people are just living if for what yeah. for want of a better expression and aspiration doesn't doesn't stretch any further than you know getting a half decent well, education and, and working it isn't it isn't that complicated because life around you isn't complicated and coming at you 100 mile an hour and i think that's the important thing because the film can sit there can't it the story you're telling can exist yeah. at that pace of life can't it 
Well, look, we, we turned it into a mythical town. I mean, the town of Clayton in the book is what we were aiming at. Mm. Um, but actually, Virginia, the, the town where most of it's shot, is part of the Iron Ranges, which is, uh, it's got a seam of iron ore running through it, and it's had it for 100 years. And there's about five towns up there that are uh, full of miners, basically, that, that, okay. that, that full of mines. And so they have their own cycle because iron, like all kind of things like that, it goes up and down depending on the stock exchange and the demand and the, you know, uh, over the years. So right now, I think Australia is stealing a lot of the business. And uh, and so the, the, while we were there, you know, there was there was thousands of people that have been laid off recently. And so it's going through a, a massive depression. And it's unlike the rest of the state of Minnesota because the, the rest of the prairie and down to uh, Minneapolis is, is it, it's like the second or third most uh, pro- prosperous state in America, you know, kind of after California. It's doing pretty well. But mm. the Iron Range up on the Canadian border in the kind of frigid low hills uh, isn't doing well at the moment. Um, and so the towns are all a bigger landscape than the number of people who live there because of this retraction. Uh, and so that for us as filmmakers, you know, it sounds terrible to take advantage of times are hard there. But that was that was what we were looking for and we were getting a bit worried we wouldn't find it in the state and and when we found those towns they were perfect for us but the people do have a kind of let's just get on with it because nobody's going to help us attitude Mm. you know and being a small indie film because at first of course with christopher lloyd arriving you know doc brown arriving into the town there was a big fuss and and again then for a little while it was a little bit tricky because they think we're a big hollywood film and we've got tons of money and then once their lives we didn't and we, we had, you know, it was a very much a low-budget film. They were actually great help. You know, the, the Flamers Bar, the, the, the owner lent us his, his giant pickup that we could use as a camera platform. You know, the people's houses we were shooting were great. You know, um, there's there's a bowling alley, uh, Dieter's bowling alley, that the crew would go on. Our, like, we were six-day shoots, so the, the, the one night off we'd have, the, all the crew and cast would end up bowling. And at the end of the night, this happened about three times, he wouldn't take any money from us. You know, it was really? incredible. You know, um, they were just so friendly. And this is the bit, again, that the media kind of pisses me off in that now we've got this terrible us and them attitude, you know, mm. that if you, whereas actually they're just really down to earth people who, as you say, are just getting on with it. And, you know, this is where they live and they're very friendly to each other and everything. You know, it's, it's, uh, we didn't get any of that kind of cliched thing of, of, uh, I guess you folks ain't from around here, you know, kind of delivery type <laughs> thing at all, you know, um, so I, I don't know. We we just had good fun with them, and uh, you know, yeah, it was uh, it was. It, it was a, you, me- you mentioned that you, you that, that, that you you mentioned about Finnish literature when you were talking to the to the author about about what you liked about the book, and yeah, and, and is it a happy accident that sort of ended up in Minnesota? Because obviously Minnesota is a is a place yeah. where a lot of, where a lot of Scandies went, wasn't it? Well, well, because we had a kind of, as I said, over the years we were trying different states, and you know, what would happen is just for people would know is that like financiers have their own favorite places. There's a lot of uh, tax breaks in different states, you know, uh, and so we were, Michigan we went to just because Nick had shot a short film there with, with um, uh, Rory Robinson, the, the Irish director did uh, Last Days on Mars. Okay. And so he knew the area, he knew, he knew how to get you know, cameras and stuff. Um, and then each state we went to was because, you know, like Ohio, we were working at one stage with an American financer who had a deal there that, you know, he could, he shot a lot of his films there. So we went and looked. Um, and Minnesota was similar in that one of the producers on board had a music studio there and so suggested that. And initially I said, oh, great, because also the first thing I felt when I read the book was the, the snow and everything and the humor. It made me think of Fargo. And Fargo, of course, is the, on the border between North Dakota and Minnesota. Of course. So yeah. it's perfect for that. Um, but, yeah, what, what I didn't expect, was, which I should have from, from Fargo, 
was the um, they're all Scandinavian stock. I mean, the more yeah. north you go, you know, it's it's a uh, and and in fact the the chapel in the mortuary we filmed was all wood, all pine. Um, and it turns out it's a, it was a Finnish uh, chapel in mortuary originally, and, and it has a grieving room in the back for the family. With a two, uh, is it a two-way? It's called or a one-way mirror, where basically they can see into the chapel, but the people in the chapel couldn't see them. And, and the idea was the family could sort of, I guess, spy on who was coming in to mourn their loved one, which is really weird, but apparently it was an old tradition. I, I ended up in Helsinki at a film festival, Night Visions, um, this great... Uh, horror and fantasy festival uh and i said this at the q a and they all shook their heads and had never heard of this so i don't know where it comes from but um yeah loads of and, and every everybody was telling us these jokes you know going so sven goes into the woods one day you know all the jokes it's like in ireland you've kerryman jokes or i suppose irish jokes you we know, got the minnesota vikings haven't we as well is there is the american football team so i suppose yeah yeah very good point yeah yeah it's true and, and, you know, like we, we met about in the casting because we did a lot of local casting, which was great fun. We met about four or five people who had been in Fargo, uh, you know, and we ended up using uh, two of them. Um, again, sorry, my brain is just gone this morning. But the, the headmaster in the school was the cop. That the, if you remember Fargo, that, the, that terrible killing where the cop pulls up behind Steve Buscemi and, and the other guy. And uh, they shoot him in the head at the window yeah, of the yeah, car. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and he's a wonderful actor. And he kept saying that, you know, the Cohen shot that about 20 different times. And he kept saying, is there any take where you could actually see my face? And then um, Bruce Bonney, uh, who's, who's the, the wonderful uh, preacher or, or vicar uh, for the funeral. He was Marge's uh, uh, assistant cop in Fargo, you know, here's your coffee, Marge. You remember, you know, he was oh, there. Really? Is, it, is yeah. that really violent? Yeah, and he was great because he was saying that he'd never acted, I think, before, or certainly not anything meaningful, before he met Frances McDormand f- 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 uh, as an audition. And the audition was, you know, she just sat with him and they had like endless cups of coffee for a couple of hours and then he got a phone call saying he'd got the role. And he's been a full time actor ever, ever since and he's brilliant. So in our case, uh, that scene, the, the chapel scene, so again, for somebody who hasn't seen the film or read the book, that, that's what I was alluding to earlier. That's one of the ones that isn't in the book. Mm, um, okay, and so okay. Chris, Chris and I wrote that. And we, for the vicar, we, we put down the kind of normal, you know, it's, it's slightly background in that he's at the front of the church and he's welcoming people and saying we're here today because it's a terrible loss of, of this character. Um, and when Bruce came in to meet us, from his back pocket, he took a kind of crumpled piece of paper and he said, you know, uh, looking at the scene, you've got a hell of a lot of action going on. I'm doing a really bad impersonation of his, his Minnesotan accent. He says, but you're going to need me to say a lot more. So I wrote a speech. Do you want to hear it? <laughs> like this. And so we all, Robbie was in the room as well. I remember he says, yeah, go for it. And he just read this wonderful speech that's in the film about, you know, Roger, Raj was a pillar to his family, a pillar to his society, a pillar to his church. But before you, know, you think of you know building some how... kind of Greek temple, you know, so he'd written all of that himself. That is just, amazing. Yeah, it's just genius, you know. And, and this again, I mean, I, I think when we're script writers, we sit in our little rooms and we don't get out. Hmm. And it's, it's all on our shoulders to come up with stuff. But film is collaborative from day one. And, and, you know, I was saying earlier about the test, about going out there, how much I learned and meeting people like that. And then that's an example. If you can, we're in an age of Skype as we are now, and, and casting has been reduced to Skype and, and even worse to IMDb pages and YouTube clips. And actually, if you get to meet the people, you know, let them come up with stuff because you never know where they'll go. And that is one of the funniest bits. Even when I watch the film after endless times, I still chuckle at that, you know. And, and if you listen carefully on a second viewing, 
you know, while there's more action going on, again, without giving away much, you can still, we left in in the soundtrack, you can still hear him continue his speech because it's too damn good to lose. So we just left it continuing on, you know. There's a sequence where he's sitting on the frozen lake ice fishing, you know, and I look over at Raj and he's staring into his hole and I'm looking into my hole and it's just brilliant, you know. It's just really natural and, and good. That's amazing. Now, yeah. I mean, you've given me a segue there. I was going to ask about casting. You've, you've talked... You've talked about how our Matt's records got involved, and that seems like a, a fairly organic, natural way for yeah. him, him to end up in, in the starring role. But you've got two very recognisable faces in the sort of key support roles. You've got, you've got Christopher Lloyd as, yeah. as, as, as one character, and you've got uh, Laura Fraser as, yeah. um, as John's mum. And, for, I mean... If, People, Christopher Lloyd obviously Bass the Future, as you mentioned, and, and Laura yeah, Fraser yeah, yeah. from uh, Breaking Bad, amongst other things, and many, many other great... Certainly, she's been in a lot of British TV as well recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she's having a great time. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really good. So, so from your... from your, How how did casting work? Because they're, they're, from, they're from very different worlds, as it were. So it's yeah. not like, it's not, I don't imagine that's just the case. They're both at the same agency. Um, uh, well, funny enough, you should say that. Uh, really? But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, ultimately, yes. But but let me explain how. I mean, Go the financiers, as you know, like will always try and hook on to who, who's the main role. I mean, again, look, this is a podcast. I think the way I, I tell my own family who weren't in film and they try and understand why I'm spending years trying to get film off the ground is that, that if, you, if you take a loan from a bank to uh, buy a house and everything goes pear-shaped, the bank takes the house. If a financier puts money in a film and everything goes pear-shaped, there's nothing. They get nothing back. Hmm. And that's why they look for anything they can as a kind of collateral. And the only real way is what are called elements, which generally means the cast. Star power. If, yeah, if it's a shit film, you know, in the old days when we went to video shop, if it has somebody famous on the cover, you'll rent it, you know, because you like that actor. And that's been the same in Hollywood since day one, I think. Um you know, you can have other elements. If you've got a famous novel, if it's a bestseller, in this case, you know, Dan's books have done quite well, but they're nowhere near being bestsellers. Um, or if the director's done 50 hits, then they're all good elements to to, mm. to, to, to listen. So, but in our case, it's the same. One of the big problems we had is we had an old man and a young boy. And usually that means you don't have a Michael Fassbender or a Tom Hardy or, or a Jennifer Lawrence type role that they can, uh, you know, hope will, will recover if something goes wrong. So the only one they could focus on was... Um, because Max was already on board and to be honest they didn't mind that because as 15 year old kids go during the time we're raising the money there aren't really any famous ones you know such and and having done a big film like Where the Wild Things Are he was as good as any of them right. uh, in terms of name recognition so that meant it was going to be the, the Mr. Crowley role yeah and so you know the lists were endless coming from financiers could you try this person that person all, all the usual suspects from you know Clint Eastwood Harrison Ford to uh, Ian McKellen Everybody wants Ian McKellen because, of course, he hit the double whammy. He he played Gandalf, and he also like was Mag what's his name Mag uh, in the X Men films, Magnet Magneto, Magneto. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, whatever you know. So he's got two big franchises whose names. So he's like you hit double gold if you get him. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it, it just happens in every film, and it's 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 kind of exhausting for directors because you know you, you've got the idea in your head of who you think would be good, and 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 they've got the idea who will mean something in, in terms of the film goes bad and you need that name on the cover, and you're hoping there's a kind of like a Vim diagram area where you both agree. And then the big problem is how do you get to them? Because, of course, you're not the only ones doing this. There's probably only eight actors that fit the brief for them, and so every financer and every film on the planet is trying to reach the same ones. So we started with uh, 
people like poor old John Hurts, you know, who died sadly recently. Yeah. And in fact, he sent a lovely email back saying, and it was very John Hurts. It was like, you know, uh, it sounds like a delightful project. Uh, it was literally like my dear boys. It sounded like a delightful project. Uh, unfortunately, at my age and in my health, I have no intention of going to some godforsaken place and being on a frozen lake in the middle of winter. <laughs> you know? And yeah, exactly. If I, get, if I keep getting rejections like that, I'll be very happy. You know, it was, it was, it was a classy man he was, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then there was a few you just don't get past what I call the gatekeepers, the agents. And that's fair enough. As I say, they're being bombarded by everybody anyway. And what have we got to offer, you know? So we, we'd seen, you know, we'd, we'd probably gone through half a dozen over the years and then as we got close to shooting, it just, I think our finance had collapsed yet again because the, the finance was seasonal. Uh, we were doing a film in the snow. It meant that if we hadn't raised the amount of money by, the, say, Christmas, then by the time we did raise it, the snow would be gone and we'd have to wait for the following year. And independent finance, if they're not going into your film, they'll go into another film. That, that's just the way it is. So three years in a row, I think we missed our deadline. And so this year it had happened. There was coming up to, to it was in November, it was happening. And... Uh, Robbie happened to be with his agents in New York, Gersh. He was over there doing a job, shooting something. And uh, so he had dinner with them, and they mentioned what he was up to, and he explained about this project, because he still was, you know, de facto producer on it. I mean, you know, without him, the project wouldn't exist, basically. Uh, he was our kind of savior. And, and they said, oh, well, we'll give us the script, and we'll have a look. And they, I think, I don't know if it was at that dinner or a day later, they said, had you talked to Christopher Lloyd, who was represented by Gersh? And we had. He was on our list, but we had mm. never got to him. And we'd kind of given up of trying to get to people because of the gatekeepers. So they gave him the script, and lo and behold, I got a phone call two weeks later. And for the first five minutes of phone call, I was kind of disbelieving this is Christopher Lloyd on the end of the line ringing for Santa Barbara. <laughs> you know, because you do. I live in Dartmoor, you know, in Devon. And, and then pretty quickly, as a director, I was sort of, I had to get on my toes because he was, I could hear the rustling of the pages. He was going through the script, actor to the director, all his notes about, about the character. Oh, really? And, and 10 minutes after that, I realized this isn't him ringing inquiring about the project. This is him talking about the character as if he's doing the project. Yeah. You see what I mean? That's like gold, And, and we, we talked for about an hour, uh, and he's quite shy. Uh, and, you know, he was, he's, he's, you know, he talks like this. He's like he's 75, 76 now, I think. I'm not quite sure. Um, but when I put the phone then, I realized, barring something I can't predict, it sounds like he's doing it. And sure enough, he was. Um, it was as mm. easy as that. After all, the crap times before, you know, so I suppose, what is it, what could be the lesson to that? never give up and have a DP who happens to have an agency who happens to have a great actor, I don't know, you know, so Gersh, Gersh kind of adopted us then, they, 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 they love Robbie, you know, he's, he's great, and, and Chris and Roy came on board, and they began suggesting people, because we're getting close to the shoot then, because we were just literally, that was Christmas, we went over, you were prepping in Minnesota, um, hoping it would bloody well snow after all the trouble getting over there, um, and so Laura came via Gersh as well, uh, and I Skyped her and was chatting to her, and she's lovely. She's from Glasgow, and she, again, really liked the character. Uh, you know, we chatted about the whole family dynamic, and she came on board. Um, and her husband is Carl Geary, so we'd already talked to Carl because he'd done a film, Jimmy's Hall, that Ken Loach directed, yeah, uh, yeah, that yeah. Robbie had shot, and Robbie knew Carl, you know, and so it just was one of those coincidences that, that Laura and, and Carl were married. So that was that was fairly straightforward. And actually, in, in a way, with indie films, because you got to remember, for us, it's it's a whole obsession but for actors it's a couple of weeks work and so for them it actually worked out because they have a, an eight-year-old daughter and and they weren't in scenes together so they could take turns in the babysitting you know and, and the child mining while one of them flew up to minnesota they were in new york at the time i think so it's a lot of practicalities at that on a, on a low budget film that can make a difference you know because we haven't got like with the uh, the book we don't have huge money to offer these you know it's it's 
it's we're offering them basically i think what's called scale or whatever you know um it's what we can afford i suppose um so so there was certainly like after years of trying to get it made once it clicked my god did it click and it came together really well and then outside of max chris laura and carl just anything to anybody else. Everybody else, I think, was casted locally in in Minneapolis and Minnesota. Okay. Um, and that, as I said earlier, that was fantastic because it was a freedom then of just getting the right people. What's and so all the teenagers were all unknown. You know, they they'd never acted before, so that that was great. What, what's your um, what's your approach to to to, to direct when when you when you're coming up to being on set or when you're on set? Do you, do hmm. you have? I mean, it sounds like obviously Christopher Lloyd has has some some input before before shooting given it that was his first sort of conversation with you but <clears throat> do you approach the actors pre-shoot and discuss what your approach is going to be or do you do you wait till you're on set and then establish kind of how you're going to go about things and i don't mean that you're autocratic i just mean you know it's what i want it can be as much about what i want from you as much as it is this is what i want you to do um, it's it's yeah, but there's no simple answer. It's a combination of everything. So okay. if I run through it pretty quickly. So I I fought to get, um, because the only contract that was very, because the only actor who was expensive but worth every penny was Christopher Lloyd because he's mm. a star. Yeah. Uh, and so I fought to get a couple of days rehearsal with him on location, but up in, in Virginia. Um, and so he arrived, I think, three days early. Uh, Max had already arrived. Max was like an old friend at the stage. We're a bit like his uncles, me, Robbie, and Nick, because we've known him so long now, you know. Okay. And Max is great, you know. But of course, there's a question mark over him, and he could feel that. In that one, the, the whole film rests on his shoulders. And two, he he was 17. We'd met him when he was 13. You know, what would he be like? You know, it's that child star going to be an adult actor. Would, would yeah, it work? Yeah. Yeah, you know, sure, we knew sure. like from that when you see the little test we did, we, you know, he's got it but to what level of complexity that John Wayne Cleaver required. So there was a, a lot out there. And he was as calm as cucumber or as cool as cucumber. So anyway, I had three days in a, in a hotel room in, in this hotel up in um, the one hotel in the town up in Virginia with kind of the wind shrieking around the building. I always remember it. And they, they were great. They got on really well. We just went through the, the script. Um, with Christopher Lloyd, all I had to do with him, and he reminded me about this on stage at the London Film Festival, actually, was just that I think... I think a lot of directors using him these days just kind of want him to repeat Duck Brown, which is really boring uh, and wasn't what we needed at all for ours. Was, you know, I'd, I'd looked at him in, in things like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and, you know, um, and he had a huge uh, theatre career as well. So all I do is just get him to simplify it a little bit on, on, the, on the rehearsal days to, take, to lose the kind of jokey kind of uh, Duck Brown element. And once he clicked with that, it was great. And what helped him click was that Max is so bloody good that the two of them sitting there, uh, rehearsing, you know, and I saw this happen with Carl Geary and Max as well, is that they can just see this kid really has it and he's really good. Uh, and, you know, Max wasn't afraid to say to, 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 to Christopher, hey, Chris, why don't we try it this way? Which for a 17-year-old to kind of somebody in their 70s who's a legend is a remarkable bit of confidence. And it wasn't arrogant, it was just natural, you know, and because of that, mm. they, they really got to it. So, so you, you sort of form what's happening with the two of them in the rehearsal. Other actors, you don't get that luxury. Um, you, Laura arrived on the, the the day she was doing one of the big mortuary scenes, you know. Um, yeah. And because of a very low budget film, you're, you're you know, we, we shot this, what was it? I'm trying to remember now, 28 days. I think we had 30 days. We came in two days early. Very little time to, to shoot something. So what I do with the other actors, with Laura and that, I would just duck into a corner 
while it's lighting or, you know, changing mag or something, and I'd run through the lines. You know, I'd probably get an hour with her that morning where we're setting up to go through stuff. And then the first couple of takes, usually it's, I, I just, directing, I, I remember somebody said this quite recently, directing literally is levels. A lot of times if you casted it right and they're really good and, and the script is great, then it's like down a bit, up a bit, bit faster, a bit slower. It's as simple as that usually, you know. Um, and, and so with Laura and with the other actors, uh, like that, it was just getting them in tune with each other. So I remember with uh, Christine, who played Anne Margaret and, and Laura and Max, us in the, sitting in the, in the chapel while the mortuary was downstairs while they're setting that up, and we just quickly run in there. And we literally have this, the pages we're doing that day, and we're just running through it and running through it. Um, and, and they'd never met each other, all three of them. It was remarkable. And, and Christine, turned, who, who's a, an actual opera singer from Minneapolis, yeah. turned out to be just really funny, really filthy sense of humour. She had Max records going bright red from his neck to the top of his hair because she kept coming up with these ideas that Margaret is the older sister, probably that all the bodies in the, in the mortuary who have been killed, she probably, they were probably former boyfriends of hers, you know, and she was very graphically <laughs> describing this. And Laura, being from Glasgow, really appreciated that because she just got the humour. So the three of us were in, or the four of us were in giggles, you know, which is great because then I know we've all, we're all in this together. And that's where low budget helps because the speed of it you'd think would be a hindrance and yeah you can really fuck up with the speed but the speed gives you energy and and actors hate waiting around so the fact that that we're doing so many scenes and quite quickly that, that's actually quite good so laura didn't have a lot of time to worry you know being thrown into the middle of film with a crew she doesn't know a director she's never met you know we just get on with it so so you see what i mean and then with the non-actors the key is to and, and this is where robbie's experience working with people like andrea and ken loach where you know they they use non-actors all the time the key is to get the first couple of takes because what they can't give you where they're not trained generally everybody's different of course is they can't give you repeatability of like 10 takes you know mm. not that we time on, on a low budget anyway yeah. so you try and grab it in the first couple of takes you know um while they're fresh and and what you find is their confidence goes after that they, if you're asking them to do it again we know it's perfectly natural it might be hair in the gate or something with the camera you know it could be anything but they begin to think if we're asking them to do it again they're doing it wrong and and they get worried and then that destroys performance so so you just i think I don't know. I don't have an overriding kind of. Can I can I just stop you there, Billy? Because one, yeah. one of the things, one of the thing, the picture I'm getting here, and it's a, I think it's a strategy lesson for any any director listening, is that you've probably told the, including all the kind of development stuff you talked about, it's like the director has to be the ultimate pragmatist, mm. and then at the flip of a switch, the ultimate opportunist. <laughs> yeah, and, you've and, got to and go to... and go with the flow. <laughs> Yeah, so like one of the things I do that we haven't touched on is I storyboard every scene of the film that I, okay. I do it myself, you know. But um, I'm old enough and wise enough. I can tell you my short film, I was making, I was literally trying to move the actor's chins to match my drawings, you know, uh, because I thought that's how you did it. And and now I'm I'm a lot more, uh, I don't have laid back, but I'm a lot more aware of the magic that happens on the day. So I'll have my plan, I'll have my storyboard. And I edit it as we go through the day. Um, and if something magic happens in the blocking, you know, where you're, you're rehearsing with the actors to camera, mm. then I go with that because it's much better than my little drawings. But I always have them to fall back on. And one of the things I do that I, I haven't actually asked if directed is, is at the end of the day, you know, I generally do little postage size stamped post storyboards where I draw all the little shots we actually did end up shooting just to be sure in my head that I got it all. Because, again, you're moving so quickly that you can't go back and you don't want to end up in the edit room. Uh, going, well, where's that close-up? We didn't get that one, you know. So just practicality, stuff like that. Because on this film, again, we were sending the stock down to a lab in L.A. So we were getting rushes back digitally, 
you know, sort of to look at on an iPad about once a week in the in the five weeks we had. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't have an editor assembling while you're shooting going, you're missing this, you need to get it. We, we were totally blind fake that we would get it, you know, um, which is quite exciting, you know. <laughs> if, 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 if it's too boring, it's too boring, you know. Now, so, look, yeah. I mean, obviously, not, <clears throat> my... I'm not interested in this story. It's, I'm, I'm not the person that's interested in this story, but I, just want, I wanted to repeat something that we said before we started recording. When I first came across your movie was, I saw the poster for the film mm. in, I th- I'm almost sure it was Euston Station. It could have been Holborn, but I'm going to say Euston because I think I was with my parents. They, yeah. I picked them up from the train from Manchester and we were going back to Leighton, which is where I live. And, yeah. um, and I'm walking through the tube station and obviously I've done that a hundred million times. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the first time I come across your movie. Is I see this poster and I go, "Oh, oh, what's that?" <laughs> and it's the, yeah. uh, it's the, and it's interesting because I've, I've, I've noticed that 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 artwork that I saw, which is the um, the UK poster, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The one with um, what's he called? With, Max. with, with Max's face and the yeah, almost yeah. like what looks like like a death metal kind of makeup, the eye makeup and stuff. Yeah. But I notice now you've got this fantastic, this equally fantastic and strange, but very different poster, which is the more painterly one. Um, is that the one out of John's? Oh, hang on, this because the one with Christopher Lloyd's head sort of exploding black in the back. Of it. Max, right. Okay. Max so, is, so that Max is like a smaller face in yeah. The, in the so that's the American poster, basically. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So look, I actually we call it poster gate. Okay. It, this happens in every film. It, it, I don't know again if, if people know, but you. You get very little control over that in that, that there's a, so a whole group of people above you say, no, no, we, we know your film. We'll do the poster. And we're the filmmakers are normally left going, well, we've kind of lived with this for years. Shouldn't we have some stay? And, and, and so, you know, and, and, and the other problem is you have like in particular, Nick, Robbie, myself, you know, we all went to, to Dunleary at the time. It was Dunleary College or School of Art and Design in Dublin. Nick did graphics. I had come from graphics in Limerick. Robbie did film, but like is, is incredibly visually aware. In other words, you've got three Irish people with a really strong sense of design, yeah. and yet each of us has our own opinions as well, so we're never easy. Um, so, you know, we had, before the film came out, the sales agent did a poster. It's the one with the hole in the ice that looks like a certain shape that, again, yeah, yeah, went to yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, got, That got, was got, the first yeah, yeah. poster. Oh, really? Um, That's was, the first one? Okay. So that was this, what's called a selling poster. So that that was okay. Uh, I think Robbie hated that one. I was all right with it. Then we, we sort of did one... We worked with the set and do another one for South by Southwest, which was uh, from a still from the film of Max emerging from steam on a street, and it was more of an indie American poster, I guess. Yeah, got that one uh, as well. I can see that. Yeah, one quite well. beautiful. Yeah, so that's two. Uh, then IFC, who had it in America, they started doing posters, and then they 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 hire a company, and you get like twenty or thirty versions, and our hearts sank because they were so Bloomhouse, you wouldn't believe it. They were like real American Bloomhouse straight horror posters, hmm. and I kept trying to point out. Um, our, the problem with that is that a we're not Bloomhouse, so you're going to disappoint the Bloomhouse fans because it's not a terrifying roller coaster ride like their films are. Uh, but also, it means it's going to put off all the people, in particular, I think, like sort of girls who kind of like I don't know. Donnie Darko was mentioned a lot, you know, the kind of more odd films. No, no, say. sure, no, I, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. But we had a massive battle, and the compromise eventually was that poster, the one you mentioned with with Christopher Lloyd's face with the sunglasses, or the end of the image on it. Um, and, and that had a kind of 80s retro feel to it, which fitted in a way with the sort of, I don't know, with, with, with Chris or Lloyd, you know. And, and also for me, it didn't scream Bloomhouse or whatever. It just looked intriguing. So I mm. said, great, go with that. Um, 
And then Bulldog in the UK, I think, came up with the wonderful UK poster we absolutely love. But what was funny was that by the time Phil from Bulldog had come up with this, um, he was reluctant to show us at first because he'd heard of our poster wars. And, knew, <laughs> knew. and it was during the London Film Festival, we were screening the film in the Rio Cinema in Brixton, and there's a bar upstairs. And while the film was on, after we'd introduced it, we all went up there. And he had his laptop, and he said, right, I'm going to show you now. And it was hilarious because there's about eight of us around the table and we all had a pint, you know. So we're, I was like, you're a brave man, Phil, to show us this now. So he showed us an early version of that one. And in fairness, we all kind of went, oh, that's not bad. That's good. And, and he started immediately saying, oh, well, it can get better kind of thing. And, and James, our, our other piece, James Harris, um, he sort of said to Phil, listen, Phil, that's the best re- reaction I've ever heard. Just go with it, you know. And yeah. We already like that one, you know. But we have two other posters that we're proud of to finish the story. I got a, a wonderful artist here in Devon to do um, a kind of a... I always imagined, I thought the film would make a great... You know the French comics, that Band Designate, I think they call them, you know, the kind of hardback Tintin ones and okay. all that. So he did... I, I, I'll send it to you, actually, Stuart. Um, he did this beautiful painted poster uh, looking out at John's bedroom at the street, and we put every character in the film in the street. Wow. Uh, if you look closely, you know, and it's a really sweet one. So I, I really... That's the one on my wall. And then um, the, the last one was the most amazing one, in a way, was Robbie contacted a guy called Midnight Marauder, who's in L.A., who's this sort of rock, like literally like a rock star poster designer. He does stuff from Terrence Malick to um, uh, Rob Zombie to, you know, uh, he does a lot of the Criterion Collection covers, okay. for example. Oh, oh as well. wow, okay, okay. And he's, he's just like, you know, and he came up with this punk, like, like a Polish 1970s poster, like a photocopy almost, uh, which just has a repeating image of Max that's just gorgeous and but really bizarre. Um, and yeah, so we're really pleased. So we've got a real arty one there, you know, which is no, kind of so cool. I've, I've just pulled that up now. Yeah, I can see. Yeah. It's, uh, so, you know, we have a lot of posters. <laughs> well, I mean, look, tell, tell you guys that, I mean, hopefully but guys at Bulldog will hear this, but but yeah, yeah. The, the, the one you, you, you liked at, at, at Brixton, it, it, yeah. it completely stopped me in my tracks as I'm walking through That's a tube great. station. Yeah. So, you know, I've seen a lot of posters since living in London in 1999. So it's, mm. it's always, it's, it, it's great when a post can arrest you. Cause it's, um, the time. And, and as, you know, as I was saying to you earlier, for all of us, it was such a thrill because we all, we're all Irish, but we've all lived in the UK for 20 years to, to see our film, our little film on a poster on the tube was probably one of the biggest thrills of the whole thing. You know, mm. that was just remarkable, you know, to see that because also sadly in this digital age we're in, you don't get printed posters anymore. You know, everything's just on, online um and so to actually go up and be able to touch the poster kind of you know what i mean that kind of sense was was amazing you know well no so. i mean like i say my wife's an artist so she 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 does uh script she 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 sells screen prints of, of her artwork so oh yeah we're very much into the you know the tactile and the physical so yeah um vision vis, you know fil, film it, it's and, like books I, I i my wife has a kindle just for for easiness you know and i understand that but i i have to have a, a book in my hand the paper you know i just and and yeah you know, so, so I think was, was the um, was I guess London Film Festival was a European premiere and South by Southwest would have been. Um, I think I'd done a couple. Had I done a European one before then? It was certainly the UK premiere. I, I mean, I might have done one festival in. I think I might have done Strasbourg before then. But yeah, so South by Southwest. There was one in Korea. 
we did a little festival up in Duluth, which is the nearest big city to Virginia, Minnesota. Okay. Um, I didn't make it to that one, but uh, one of us uh, went over to it. And that was great because some of the crew got to see the film for the first time there, which was really good, you know. Um, so, yeah, and then it's kind of exploded. And we've done, it's been all over the world, I think, in festivals. Um, we've kind of tried to get it in everywhere, you know, that would take it, really. Uh, and it's won quite a few awards, so that's always nice, you know. Um, well, look, let's remind people then, I'm Not a Serial Killer is... He's out now on all the VOD platforms and Blu-ray and uh, and DVD. Do you want, actually, you, you've touched on them. Do you, want, do you want to say specifically what some of the some of the extras are that you know people are going to get if they if they yeah, buy the, we, the there, there's the usual. The, the, there are I don't know how many they put on, but there's three or four deleted scenes, uh, which you know. When when you're in editing, there's certain scenes. There's nothing wrong with the scenes, but they just slow the pace down, or yeah. they. They give to Mitch and Payne. Actually, as a script writing thing, one of the interesting things on this very quickly was that uh, the book, like the film, at, at a certain point, about a third of the way through, has the sea change that happens, that, that mm. every is vector. And Chris and myself, one of the big things we have to deal with is that there's an awful lot of information before that happens, setting up John, the world, everything that's going on. And you can't move those scenes later, even if they're really juicy. And, and the thing about adapting a book is you get wonderful bits of dialogue, wonderful writing. And so we constantly battled against space to, to, to say enough. And, and even by the time we got to shoot, about two at least, if not three of the deleted scenes come from that part of the film. Because when we were editing, uh, and my great editor, uh, Nick Emerson, who's ruthless, just went, you're just... You're telling either you're repeating information you've told a different way in another scene, or you're saying information and it's not going to get in because you need to see it, or it's just slowing the pace down. And we have to lose it, um, and so that often happens on films. You know, so it's not wrong with those individual scenes. So they're all there. Then there's the the original test I've talked about quite a bit. Um, it's like a music video uh, that's on board, and we Nick Ryan and myself uh, Nick cut together the phone box conversation with Max Records at 13, where his voice isn't even broken, with him doing the same conversation as a 17-year-old, and it's remarkably different. It's fascinating, actually, to look at that. Um, then, without giving away spoilers, we have a kind of behind-the-scenes little thing we made of a particular part in the film mm -hmm. that you, Stuart, will know what I'm talking about, I think, yeah, yeah. which we actually shot in my garage here in Devon uh, months out. Did you really? Yeah, because we, we look. Uh, all I say is it involves practical effects, and I know of course, yeah, yeah. background is that if you're doing, if you're standing on set with a full crew around you, uh, trying to move tiny bits of rubber and plastic and string, um, while the whole crew, whole crew thinks you're nuts, it's a really uncomfortable and slow experience. So I thought, well, let's move it back somewhere controllable because you only need about five people. <clears throat> so <clears throat> Max flew over for it, um, and he is involved in operating shall we say some of the practical effects um oh, and wow. robbie backford and yeah we, we just shot in my garage and it was great fun actually um and yeah so that's on we, we you know nick uh, nick ryan cut uh, shot and cut the sort of making of it. that's brilliant because he's a as i said a, a sundance winning documentary maker um what else is on it uh I'll, i've got some of my storyboards i always chuck a few of my stories on i think i like to bore people to death with my little scribbles and then uh toby froud look Quick bit about Toby Froud. So he, he basically, uh, his parents, he grew up here in the same town I live in now. His parents are Brian and Wendy Froud. And Brian, if anybody's into fantasy, uh, he does all the fairy books. Um, and was, you know, he came up with Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and worked with Jim Henson to make those films. Gee, uh, and Wendy, his wife, was a, a, a Muppeteer from New York. And she ended up being one of the team that designed Yoda and Star Wars. 
So there's an awful lot of history of fantasy, if you like, there. And Toby was the baby in Labyrinth on David Bowie's knee. Um, but Toby is now in Leica in Portland, uh, sculpting and designing all the fantastic characters in their films, like the Kubo and Two Strings. So we asked Toby to design a particular character in the film. Mm. Uh, and there's loads of photographs of all his design work. And, and wow, everything. wow. Yes, the evolution of a, of a character. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. Evolution, good word. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's about it, really. But, uh, you know, it's good. And, and I think there's more on the Blu-ray than the DVD. So, you know, cool. have to check. Well, look, it only, it only takes me to say uh, t- thank you for your time, Billy. For uh... I actually really enjoyed that, Stuart. That was really good. Cheers, man. It was cool. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes. And you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com.